morning. As Josh mentioned just a minute ago, this is our last Sunday in the Beatitudes. We've been in Matthew since September, and we started the Beatitudes, I think, right before Christmas, maybe, somewhere around there. So this is the last week we'll be in this section, and we'll keep going in the Sermon on the Mount after this. Next Sunday, Levi Secord will be with us. Levi is pastor of Christ Bible Church in Roseville, a pillar network church, and I've gotten to know Levi pretty well over the last couple of years, and I think you'll really appreciate him and enjoy his ministry of the Word. He's going to be preaching from Ephesians 1, and I'm excited to have Levi with us uh, next week. I have to forgive my voice. I have whatever all of you have or have had (laughs) in the last month, and so we'll get through it together this morning. So I'm thinking about our text. We're in Matthew 5, uh, 10 through 12 specifically this morning. And for whatever reason, I was just thinking for most of us, if you're a bit older, or maybe at least if you've been out of school for a while, you remember from your younger years the various fads and trends that tend to kind of sweep through, you know, schools or organizations or whatever. Um, And it seems, for the most part, that people have a desire to kind of fit in with whatever's popular. So I'm the youngest of four. I have three older sisters. That's a prayer request if you couldn't tell that. But I remember, you know, being younger and there was a time when Jordash jeans were super popular. And if you had those, you were cool. Or then it was Jerbos or it was whatever. There's always these fashion things coming and going. Or how about words or catchphrases? You can kind of date yourself if you still use certain phrases that were popular, you know, back uh, in the time when you were younger. And even though there's this kind of push for individuality in our culture, there's also a fear of being different. Right, And so these, these fads come and go, and a lot of us just got sucked into it because we didn't want to be marked as weird or different or outside of the main group of people. And now I'm sure there's exceptions to this, but I just find it a really odd kind of tension where on one hand, we are encouraged to be yourself, to express your individuality, and on the other hand, you get ridiculed if you're not part of the group. So it's, it's this kind of odd tension that we live with, with wanting to be accepted, not really wanting to be marked as differently, and it's just something that we all sort of deal with, or at least dealt with. Well, as we've been here in the Sermon on the Mount, specifically in the Beatitudes, what we have seen is that the way Jesus commands us to live, the instructions that he is giving us here in this section, will cause us to be different from the world around us. We cannot live faithfully to the word of God, to what he is commanding us to, and not stick out. The kind of one goes with the other. And so far, this idea has been somewhat implicit in the Beatitudes. So as we've been going through and seeing poor in spirit and meek and pursuit of righteousness and these kinds of things, we can sort of extrapolate out of that. We can draw out of that, okay, if I live this way, I'm going to look different. Things are just going to be different around us. In fact, we've called the kingdom of God the upside-down kingdom because when we live according to the way Jesus calls us to live, it's going to seem backwards in a lot of ways to the world around us. Well, even though the result this far has been implicit in our text today, Jesus gets very clear 
very explicit that following him in obedience will lead to a certain outcome, and that outcome is hostility or persecution. And this is where you and I have to resolve ahead of time that we are going to live our lives in faithfulness to God in the heat of the moment is not the place to make the decision. We got to come ahead of time, think ahead, trust the word of God and resolve in our hearts that we will not cave to fear or pressure or the popular opinion that is around us, but we will stay faithful to God's word even if that means we suffer the consequences. Now Jesus tells us that when we live faithfully to him and we experience hostility, persecution as a result of that way of living, we'll be blessed, we'll be happy. So we got some work to do, don't we, to figure out what Jesus is talking about. So let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and this will be the last time we read starting in verse 1, but I want to read this whole section, and we will pray and begin our study this morning. So Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to start in verse 1. seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Lord, there is great clarity in your word. There is uh, no ambiguity here. We understand that when we live according to the way that you have set out for us, that there will be consequences to this. And it's not that we look forward to this. There's not some kind of, you know, pursuit of pain for pain's sake. But Father, we ask that you would help us to be ready for whatever you would lead us through. I don't think all of us in this room will experience the same kinds of persecutions. But we are all headed for hostility, for opposition if we live faithfully to your word. We live in a time where Truth is relative, and there is a sort of hatred for absolutes. And yet, here is your word clear, absolute, direct. So, God, I ask that as we try to understand your word this morning, you would use our time together as an opportunity for us not only to gain information, knowledge, understanding, but would you use this to prepare our hearts? God, we don't want to be caught off guard. When the fiery trial comes, we don't want to be unaware of what awaits us when we live faithfully to you. So we ask that in addition to our understanding growing today, to our knowledge increasing, you would also prepare our hearts. Give us the strength and the courage by your spirit 
to live faithfully to you no matter the outcome because you are the faithful God. Eric just said, you don't change and you have promised to be with us and to keep us, so we trust you and pray that you would help us to trust you more. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray these things now. Amen. Amen. So we're focusing on verses 10 through 12 of Matthew chapter 5 this morning. And this can be broken up, I think, into two sections. It's all very similar, right? But there is a little bit of a difference here. So in verse 10, Jesus continues with the standard beatitude format that we have seen starting back in verse 3. Blessed are so-and-so, fill in the blank, for this is going to happen. The same thing happening here in verse 10. Then in verses 11 and 12, the focus changes from kind of a general or broad thing to specifically narrowed on the disciples. We can see this in the change of pronouns. It goes from those and they to you. You see that in verse 11, and we'll draw attention to that later. Now, this, um, this doesn't mean that we're having a radically different interpretation but it does mean that we should take note that there's a shift happening here in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, Jesus has been up on the mountain. We read that in verse 1. He, he went up away from the crowds. The disciples came around him. And of course, the crowds followed him. We know that. But his primary audience here is the disciples. So he starts, verses 3 through 10, by this sort of general, broadly applicable teaching. Like, blessed are those who do this, these, and that. And then he's going to narrow it specifically to his disciples. And this marks a shift. As we go on in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to continue. You are the light of the world. You are a city on the hill. He's going to narrow this into his disciples specifically. Now, like I said, that doesn't mean we don't need to pay attention. It doesn't mean it's radically different. But I want you to see that there's something shifting here in Jesus' emphasis in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's cover verse 10 first. When Jesus says... Blessed are those who are persecuted. That word persecuted is just a general word for mistreatment. All kinds of mistreatments. It's used pretty commonly throughout the New Testament. And Jesus is going to use it again in verse 11. Only there he adds verbal forms of, of persecution. If you see that, let's just look at 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. So we have persecution there, and then he adds in some verbal things. So I think for verse 10, we can just understand this in terms of the suffering that we will experience as a result of our conduct. Suffering we experience as a result of our conduct. Um, this is not referring, just by way of note here, this is not referring to suffering with illness or suffering as a result of sin per se. The Bible does address those things, and we have covered those things in detail in the past. But Jesus here seems to be focused specifically on what will happen to his people when they live according to his word. So I just want to make sure we got things clear here. We're going to clarify this even more as we keep going. But we see it clearly when we read the rest of verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So Jesus is talking about a specific kind of suffering, a specific kind of persecution that comes as a result of living out the Christian life, living the way that he's been telling us to live in the Beatitudes. Now you remember that there is a qualifier here. This is the righteousness' sake. And we've already established in this context what righteousness means. If you remember back from verse 6, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we said there that righteousness was living the way that God wants us to live. It's the external part. It's the obedience. It's the observable living out of the Christian life. And I think that that definition stands here when we come to saying that blessed are those who are persecuted for living the way that God instructs us to live. That's the framework that we're dealing with here in verse 10 and as we move on. So you remember how I said that Jesus' teaching is primarily focused on his disciples And what I want to do to help us understand what he's saying is to hear what one of his disciples had to say about this. So among that group that's sitting there is, of course, Peter. And Peter, bless his heart, is often one to kind of speak before thinking or act before thinking, but he nails it here and he gets it right. So what I want to do is take us to 1 Peter and I want to read a couple of texts and I want you to listen And see if you can pick up on the fact that Peter has been with Jesus. He's going to say something very similar, something who he could only say if he had been around the master. I think sometimes we get the idea when we read the epistles that they're sitting around the apostles and they're in prison or they're in their home or wherever they are and they're just trying to think, okay, what could I say that would be really encouraging? What could I say to motivate these believers? But we can't separate, that's not really what was happening. They had the source material because they had been with Jesus. So they're not just making stuff up when they write their letters. They are taking what Jesus taught them and they're kind of doing the same thing we do on a Sunday morning. They're trying to apply the words of Jesus to their context. So Peter does this and listen to 1 Peter chapter 3 starting in verse 14. You can follow along or you can listen to what I read. So Peter says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake... You will be blessed, which is basically a summation of what Jesus says in Matthew 5.10. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, another word Jesus uses, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now this is such a wonderful commentary on what Jesus is saying. It's not that Jesus missed something, right? I'm not saying, okay, Jesus said what he said, but we really need to go to Peter to get the full picture. Peter is just applying what Jesus says, but he draws things out of it in a way that I think is very helpful for us, and it's a great commentary on this passage. So, let's listen again, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 14, you can just flip the page. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And I think Peter is clarifying exactly what Jesus is getting at here when he's telling us that not all suffering is for the sake of Christ. It's one of the things that we need to draw out of this passage We experience suffering for all kinds of reasons. Maybe we were disobedient. Maybe we took matters into our own hands. 
Maybe we went around what God has established for us and tried our own way and we experienced the consequences. So Peter is saying when he's saying, you know, don't suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, what he's saying is that when you do something disobedient and you experience the consequences, we shouldn't say, oh, I'm being persecuted for righteousness. Nope, you're suffering the consequence of your mistake. You get, you get the difference there? So we can't just say anytime something goes wrong in our life, oh, I'm being persecuted for the gospel. That might be true, but it might not be true. And we need these kinds of texts to remind us it's not always that you're suffering for the gospel. Sometimes we just suffer because the world is full of sin and we still sin and do things not in the right way. So that's what is implied, I think, in Jesus' teaching. When he says in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, we can imply that it's not always just for that sake that we suffer. And Peter makes this really clear, I think, in 1 Peter chapter 4. So if that's what it doesn't mean, we still have to clarify, okay, what does Peter mean? What does it mean and what does Jesus mean? Blessed are those who are persecuted. That sounds backwards from a human perspective. So let's talk about the fact that this suffering is on account of righteousness. Jesus says in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So what exactly is he talking about? Well, we've already defined righteousness as living according to God's standards, living the way God desires us to live. And the definition works again, like I said, when we come to verse 10. When we live according to God's standard, when we follow in obedience to what he has set before us, when we care more about what he thinks than what everybody else around us thinks, when we submit to his will rather than our own, all of those things are part of what it means to live righteously. There's not exactly one very narrow definition, but it's just in general obedience to the word of God. This kind of living, righteous living, is guaranteed by Jesus to get the attention of those in the world who hate God. See, there's a lie in the world, and it's called neutrality. And what I mean by that is the lie of neutrality tells us it doesn't really matter how you live. There is no objective standard. Sure, you can live that way as long as you don't offend anybody else. Everything's kind of neutral. You want to be a Buddhist? Great. You want to be a Christian? Great. You want to be a Muslim? Great. Just as long as you don't offend anyone, we can all get together. Everything's sort of neutral. That's a lie. Jesus says that's a lie by saying, when you live according to the standard of his world, his word, you will be persecuted. But the lie of neutrality says, oh, you don't have to pick a side. <clears throat> you don't have to ruffle feathers. You can just exist in the middle and you never have to take a stand for everything. You can love God and you can love the world. You can be a Christian and you can participate in all the things the world promotes. It really doesn't matter. Everything's neutral. Lies. The word of God will not let that kind of neutrality stand. And this is why I so appreciate the clarity of the Bible. There is no ambiguity in the Bible. There's no lack of clarity for us when it comes to what God expects from us and what he has called us to do in our lives. There are two basic categories of people in the world. That's four, I just meant two. 
to being the righteous and the wicked. You either love God or you are opposed to him. The scripture is so clear on this matter. And Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, 10 to 12 tells us that these two groups are not at peace with one another. There cannot be a continual coexistence of righteousness and wickedness without some kind of conflict. And Jesus promises that there will be persecution when we live according to his standards. You see, the world makes claims. They make claims of tolerance, inclusivity, neutrality, but it has no power to actually make that happen. Christ, by way of contrast, it makes claims and encourages us for peace, righteousness, living according to the word of God. The difference is he has the power to produce that in his people. And the reason that I draw attention to those two things is because we have to see those as contrasting realities. Do not believe the lie of neutrality, that you can just do whatever you want and be cool. You can't believe the Bible that tells us there is a standard, there is a way to live, and praise God he's given us the strength to do it by his spirit. He doesn't just say, figure this out and live that way. He says, live this way and here's the key to doing it. So there's just such emptiness in the world and in the empty and hollow promises. It does matter how you live. It does matter how you think. It does matter what you love. And this text is telling us, when you live this way, that's gonna become very clear. Because the world in the darkness that it lives in, cannot stand the light. Jesus talks about this extensively in John. So, how is it that Jesus can say, blessed are those who are persecuted? Happy are those. That doesn't make sense, right? That sounds a little bit backwards, but I suppose the rest of the Beatitudes have sounded that way as well. Blessed are those who mourn. That doesn't make sense from a human perspective, but we saw what Jesus means there. So let me do my best to explain what Jesus means and how it is that he can say, blessed are you when you are persecuted. Now I just read from 1 Peter 4 a moment ago. We're going to go back to that text and we're going to read just a little bit earlier. But when we suffer rightly... And what I mean is when we suffer for the cause of Christ, for the gospel, for the sake of righteousness, we, in a unique way, participate in the suffering of Jesus. This is all over the New Testament. Let me just read a couple of texts. Peter says this, 1 Peter 4, again, verse 12. Beloved, Christian, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Rejoice in the suffering because you are participating in Christ. Paul understood this. He talks about it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. He says that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him 
in his death. So the reason, I think, one of the reasons that Jesus can say, blessed are those who experience this kind of persecution is because when we do this, we participate in, we have a better understanding, we have greater clarity to the suffering of Jesus that happened for us. So it's not meaningless. Jesus doesn't just say, well, I'm in the, I'm in the habit here. I've got to say blessed because I said it the last eight times. That's not it at all. He means every word he says. And I think one of the reasons that he can say you will be blessed for this kind of thing is because when we do this, when we experience this kind of persecution, we get clarity on what Jesus suffered for us. And we love him more. And we trust him more. And we rely upon him more because of what we know and because of what we have experienced. Now Jesus also connects this persecution with the inheritance of the kingdom. Right? Look back at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now we dealt with this already in verse 3. It's the same verbiage. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you missed that you can go back but I'm not going to go into detail on this, but I will summarize what the kingdom is and why I think Jesus says this. So when we did this back in verse 3, I said that the kingdom of heaven, which is the same as the kingdom of God, is not a geographical area. So let's get that out of our minds. It's not referring to a specific mountain or island or desert or place. The kingdom of heaven is where the rule And the authority of the triune God is acknowledged and joyfully obeyed by his people. It is entered into through repentance and faith. In other words, you must be born again to enter the kingdom. It was inaugurated with the coming of Jesus. It is here now and it will come in its fullness at the end of the age. That's all the various aspects of the kingdom that we talked about. Now, the reason this is important for what Jesus says here is when we define the kingdom in terms of its past, present, and future reality, when Jesus says the kingdom belongs to those who are persecuted, he's saying that despite opposition, despite persecution, those who suffer for righteousness will still inherit the kingdom. In fact, they're in it now. Suffering and persecution do not disqualify a person from inheriting what God has promised. In fact, it's the mark of legitimacy that we suffer for and with Christ. It doesn't disqualify us from the kingdom. Rather, it cements our position in the kingdom as sons of God and heirs with Christ. So Jesus throws this in, I think, as a reminder that we shouldn't get the idea that living in the kingdom is going to be hassle-free. If we do and we suffer on account of Christ, we might say, oh, well, maybe I'm not in the kingdom. Maybe something's going wrong. Maybe I messed everything up. Not true. Right now, in the kingdom, we experience suffering, persecution. This is why it's so important to understand past, present, future. Because it will not always be this way. But for now, this is what we experience. And Jesus says, Don't let this throw you. When you suffer, when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, yours is the kingdom. So we have the present reality. We have the hope of the future coming kingdom. This is why Jesus can say what he says in verse 10. So let's look now at 11 and 12. 
And let's read these verses together, get them back in our context. So very similar, but slightly different. Verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now very similar, but there's a few interesting things that we have to notice. As I mentioned before, we're seeing a shift in subject. So Jesus moves from general principles to specific instructions for his disciples. We see this in the change of subject from they and those to you. We just saw it in verse 11. Jesus, I think in one sense, broadens the category for what is considered persecution by including not only physical mistreatment but verbal as well. His followers are going to face all kinds of persecutions and suffering for being faithful to him. And notice, just as the teaching moves to a more specific audience, so does the cause of the persecution. So previously, persecution came as a result of godly living, as pursuing righteousness. But for the disciples, persecution is also going to come because of their connection to Jesus himself. Look at verse 11 again with me. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now I'm not trying to separate Jesus from the gospel or Jesus from righteousness. They are all entwined together. But there is a unique way in which these men who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, they are going to have a different kind of stake in a sense as they defend the gospel because they're not just defending an idea. They're not just defending a theory or a doctrine. They are defending a person that they knew, a man who they lived with, ate with, traveled with, ministered with for three years. And it is account of that direct and unmediated relationship with Jesus that many of the disciples are going to face persecution and death. Not just for the gospel in a general sense, which is true, but also for daring to say that Jesus, their friend, the man they knew, he is Lord. And that gets them in all kinds of trouble and persecution. So Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples to stand firm to understand their foundation. And just as he held out the promise of the inheritance of the kingdom in verse 10, so in verse 12, I think he's doing something really similar to motivate the disciples specifically. So first he says, let's look at verse 12, first he says that they should rejoice and be glad when this persecution happens. Now this is very strange. The verbs rejoice and be glad are voiced in this progressive present tense, which means they should land on the reader as a command. There's, there's force here behind these words. There's no suggestion. Jesus isn't saying, if, if you feel up to it, if you got the strength on that day, do this. He is saying, do it. Rejoice. Be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Now, of course, Rejoicing in suffering is a very common theme throughout the New Testament, throughout the whole Bible, and it's grounded here in Jesus' teaching. The reason 
that the disciples can actually rejoice and be glad in their suffering is not only because they share the sufferings of Christ, as we saw earlier, but also because of what awaits them in eternity. It's the future that motivates their obedience. Again, Peter is sitting here hearing all of this, and he's, he nails it again, 1 Peter 4.13, when he says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, which we already talked about, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Okay, so both of these texts, Matthew 5.12 and 1 Peter 4.13, make the connection between present suffering and persecution and future glory. <clears throat> Jesus even uses the word reward. <laughs> now I know sometimes in the Christian life we kind of get a little bit jumpy when we hear the word reward because we are taught from the scriptures that we shouldn't seek our own reward. We shouldn't seek the glory for ourselves. And that's true. But it is also right and it is good and it is commanded of us to be motivated in our present obedience by what is promised to all who are faithful to the Lord. So maybe it would be helpful for us to think about this reward not in terms of something we earn and the outcome of our obedience, but maybe we can think about it in terms of what God has promised to those who will persevere. And of course, we know he's the one who causes us to persevere, so it all works out. When we, we take the emphasis of the reward and put it on God rather than on ourselves, I think it's a tremendous motivation that God gives to us. Now, one last observation before we close. Notice what Jesus says in the very last part of verse 12. He says, For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The prophets who were before you. So he is saying that if those who came before his disciples and ministered the word of God to the people of God, if they were persecuted for their ministry, the disciples and their generation won't be any different. This is very similar to Jesus' teaching about how the servant is not greater than his master. You remember that? We're going to get into that later in Matthew's gospel. But the prophets were the ones who spoke the word of God to God's people. They declared his will, his instructions, his warnings to the people of Israel. And what this text is telling us, in addition to many other things, is that the disciples are going to be treated the same way as the prophets because they are now fulfilling the prophetic ministry under the new covenant. They are the ones now who will take the word of God and preach it to the people. Only it's going to be slightly different in the sense that the information they get, the, the revelation that they are talking about, doesn't come through an angel. It doesn't come through a vision or a dream, but it comes through the Son of God himself. It's a greater ministry in that sense. Hebrews 1 testifies to this. Long ago, at many times and at many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his son. That's the greaterness of the new covenant. And all of the disciples and the apostles are now the mouthpiece for the word of Christ to be spread to the people. And Jesus says, you're going to have the same kind of ministry, declaring the word, declaring my will, 
And just like the prophets before you were persecuted, so you also will be persecuted. This marks the end of the Jewish age and the start of the church age as the prophetic ministry, which had been in place from the beginning, in a sense, is coming to a close. John the Baptist is the last prophet under the old covenant. And now Christ comes and he tasks his followers, his disciples, to be his prophetic voice. And just like the prophets were persecuted, he says, you also will experience this persecution for your faithfulness. Now I want to close by going back to this lie of neutrality. When it comes to Jesus... When it comes to understanding who he is, what his teaching is, the implications of everything he said, there can be no neutrality. None. If a man understands, fully understands who Jesus is, what he has said, he will either confess him as Lord or curse him as a fraud. There, there's, no, there's no middle ground here to be had with Christ and his teaching. If our, if our conception of Jesus, if our idea of who he is, if that articulation can be applauded and encouraged by those who are not part of Christ, then maybe we haven't presented the whole Christ. Jesus is more than just a teacher He's more than someone who promotes morality. He is more than someone who just tolerates and encourages, would never condemn anybody. That's not biblical Jesus. And I want to make sure that as an implication of what we see in this text, that we understand when we accurately, when we biblically, when we fully understand and articulate who Jesus is, we should expect hostility especially in an age where everything is so slippery. It just seems like it's so hard to nail anything down firm in the world, doesn't it? Doesn't it just seem like everything is subjective, everything's kind of fluid? Well, it's fine if you believe that. And for the most part, people are happy for you to say, well, yeah, Jesus is one way to salvation. But don't you dare say he's the only way, because that's, that's hate speech. You're not tolerating everybody else's opinion. Well, the Bible doesn't have room for that. So I just want to make sure that we understand that when we know Jesus, when we know what he says, when we defend the gospel, when we defend the person of Christ, Jesus promises us we will face the consequences for that kind of living. And maybe we think, well, but yeah, we live in America though. I mean, this isn't Sudan. So what do we do with a text like this? We have to get there, right? We have to, there's no good in just saying, well, here's what it is. What, what do we do with this? How do we handle a text like this when we are not in this situation right now? It's probably safe to say that we won't experience this in this way right now, where we live. And you can say, oh, but it's coming, and yep, that's, maybe that's true. But what are we to do with this right now? 
How can we benefit and learn from this text on persecution? I have two ways of answering this, and we'll close with this. First, I would say if, if we are not experiencing persecution for the way that we live the Christian life, then first of all, pray and thank the Lord that he has kept that from you and pray for and support those who are being persecuted in this way. There are many people in the world who are right now experiencing exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 10 to 12. We are connected as a church to missionaries who are in a place where if the right people found out what they are doing, they could be arrested or imprisoned or worse. So if this isn't the reality for you, which for many of us it's not, then pray for and support those who are in this position. God calls us to do that, and it is one way that I think we can apply this text. The second way that I would answer the question of, well, what do we do with this if we're not being persecuted, would be to say that perhaps we should start living our lives with a little bit more volume. Maybe we need to turn it up a little bit. It's really easy to sit in this room and say, amen, we know the truth. But are you willing to speak the truth when it's unpopular? Are you willing to love what God loves and hate what God hates and make sure people know that? Now, Peter already addressed this. He said, do it with gentleness, do it with patience. We have the parameters. But too often, it is too easy to be content in your own heart to know the truth and just shut up about it. That's not what we're called to. Turn it up. Turn up the volume of your life with Christ and see what happens. Now this can look a variety of ways, and I'm not telling you to go pick a fight. But I am calling us to live the Christian life outside of this room. There's one example. And like I said, there are many. This past week, Joey and I were down at the state capitol on Tuesday we had the chance to pray with some legislators and representatives as part of the Church Ambassador Network. It's a great opportunity. You can talk to me more about that if you want to know. But we had the chance to talk to some uh, both conservative and liberal uh, legislators and representatives. And there's a bill being pushed through the House right now for legalizing doctor-assisted suicide for anyone 18 and up. It's 16 in Canada right now. It's 18 and up is what's being pushed through right now. That's wickedness, and it should be spoken against. That is probably the clearest picture of man wanting to be God that exists, to control life. They want to do it on the front end through abortion. They want to do it on the back end via euthanasia. Either way, it violates the word of God. Are we ready to speak out against those things? Love what God loves. Hate what God hates and leave the consequences to him. He has promised to be with us. He has promised to supply what we need in those moments, but he has also promised, along with those promises, that living according to his word will bring consequences. So I just want to encourage us. Like I said, I am not recommending that you start fires and get into fights. But I'm saying maybe it's time we turn up the volume on the way we live and stand for what God stands for, and speak out against what he is against. Blessed are those 
who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, each one of us now has to decide what we're going to do with this text, just as we've done every Sunday. Each one of us has to resolve in our heart what obedience looks like to your word. For some, it'll be a very public display. For others, it won't be, and that's okay. We're not all called to the same things. But I do ask, God, that you would help us to discern, help us to know what does it mean to live the Christian life? What does it mean to put ourselves out there, to love what you love, to hate what you hate? What does that mean? Would you guide us, Lord? Would you allow us to be patient and gentle, but to never back down from speaking the truth where it is appropriate. So would you strengthen us for this, God? Give us the ability to be lights in a dark world. And we understand from your word that when we live in the pursuit of righteousness, we will experience hostility. But I pray that that would not stop us, God, that you would strengthen us for this moment that we would be faithful ambassadors of yours and would you give us the strength to be faithful to you, God. We thank you for our missionaries. We thank you for people who are right now living this text out. We pray that you would protect them, that you would support them, that you would enable them to be obedient to you no matter the cost and would we be faithful to pray for and support these brothers and sisters. Thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that Jesus was not bent by fear, that he, he went to the cross. He suffered injustice because of righteousness and because of what he did. We have salvation. We have life. And we are so thankful for that, God. So even now, as we are able to sing and come to the table, would you remind us of this? The great cost of our salvation, but also the wonderful, wonderful plan of redemption that you have given to us. So I thank you for these things, Lord. Make us a strong people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.